Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Last time we were in 2 Corinthians, we were in chapter 8, where Paul began a new subject, talking about the collection he was going to come and collect at Corinth for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And chapters 8 and 9 really form a unit where he talks about that collection, the motivation for their giving, and how he's going to bring, uh, take up the collection and things like that. As we've said, Second Corinthians is not an easily outlined book, but a lot of it has to do with him restoring his relationship to the Corinthians after they finally had a positive attitude towards him. And so he's working to restore that relationship. He's continually defending his apostleship in the book, as he did somewhat in 1 Corinthians. And there was a bit of unfinished business, and that was taking up this collection for the saints um, that he evidently had started, or pro- and they had promised a year earlier, and now he was continuing with them and uh, making arrangements to come. And in chapter 8, he said he was going to send Titus along with two companions to come and collect it early before he got there. And that would kind of protect him from any accusation that he was visiting them just for the money. Um, And also to give them some time to prepare the collection ahead of time. In chapter 9, we're going to see some of those same, same ideas because it continues the discussion from chapter 8, of course. And in this chapter, he's going to emphasize their motivation, however. So not just how he's going to collect it, but we see a lot about the motivation for giving. And, um, and it's good words for us, too, because giving is uh, an important part of the Christian life. It's, um, sometimes people don't feel comfortable talking about money, and, but we're not just talking about money. It's the whole issue of being generous and helping other people. So... We're going to talk about joyful giving and giving joyfully, and that's what comes out in this chapter, so a lot about the motivation. Um, let's look at verses 9, chapter 9, 1 through 5, I'll read that. Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know your willingness, about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that, as I said, you may be ready, lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. So in verse 9 and verse 1, uh, you see he's returning to the subject of this ministry to the saints and um, talking about that. And uh, he says, it is superfluous for me to write to you. In other words, they already knew about his coming. They already knew that they should be prepared. So in some ways, this is a way of reminding, but he wants to dig deeper, I think, and talk about their motivations. 
He knew that they were willing to give, he says in verse 10. And he's even boasted to the Macedonians about their willingness. Now, you remember the Macedonians from chapter 8, he said they, were, they gave out of their poverty. And so he was boasting to them that the Corinthians were also willing to give. And that, that Achaia was ready a year ago. Achaia is a surrounding region, so Corinth evidently had a lot of influence in some of the communities and churches around Achaia or the region. And your zeal was stirred up by the majority. So they were zealous to give. Their minds were favorable towards Paul now. And he said that he's sending Titus and the two companions, verse 3, um, so that, that his boasting about them would not be in vain. In other words, they'd have the chance to follow through and, and prove what Paul had boasted was true. And he wants them to be ready, is essentially what's uh, the most important thing about, about uh, his writing. He wants them to be ready, verse 3, he says. So they want to, he wants them to be prepared ahead of time. And he says in verse 4, he mentions some Macedonians who come with him. So evidently, not only did he send Titus and two companions ahead of time, but some of the Macedonians he was going to bring with them. And, and he says, um, not to mention you, so that, that they're, they're coming with me and find you unprepared. We, not to mention you, lest we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. In other words, they're coming with him, and he doesn't want them to be embarrassed by being unprepared because he's been boasting about their generosity. And also, Paul himself uh, would be ashamed also if he had boasting wasn't proven true. So he wants them to be sure to be ready because he has built up their reputation and their desire to give. And the Macedonians would be witness to that. And can you imagine these very, very poor Macedonians coming into Corinth and seeing them perceiving them as unwilling or unready to give, and yet they had given out of their deep, deep poverty, he says. Now, in verse 5 now, he's talking about their generosity, and he wants it to be their giving, to be a matter of generosity. And therefore, he says, he thought, he thought it was necessary to exhort the brothers to go ahead of time and prepare this generous gift, which they had previously promised. So, evidently, the conflict that Paul had with the Corinthians postponed this whole visit and collection of the offering uh, for about a year. And he wants it to, to be prepared ahead of time so that it's a matter of generosity, he says, and not a grudging obligation. So now he's starting to talk about their motivation for giving. He wants it to be a genuine act of generosity and not something they feel they're obligated to do. Um, sometimes people give out of uh, a grudging obligation when they're pressured by other people to give or pressured by a church to give, for example, or um, in, in some way guilted into giving. Or if somebody you know, gives you a Christmas gift, you say, oh, well, now I've got to give them a gift. We feel an obligation to return the generosity, but, but it's not really generous if we're doing it with the wrong motives. He wants it to be a very genuine thing. He's not twisting their arms. And he's tried to salvage their reputation. Um, 
So what is generosity? You know, it's a, generosity, of course, is kind of a relative term. Um, what would generosity mean to you, I wonder? What did generosity mean to the widow who gave two mites when Jesus said it was everything she owned? Generosity is a relative term. There's not a dollar amount that he gives to that. I think the important thing is that they're doing it because they want to do it and they want to help other people and they want to give. Generosity suggests to me some sacrificial element to it um, that goes beyond just convenient. There's that which is convenient to give. Oh yeah, I've got that right here with me. And then there's that which is generous. Well, I might have to go into my bank account or into my savings or you know something like that. It suggests to me a little bit of sacrificial giving in some way. But the main point is that it comes from a heart of generosity and not grudgingly because they feel guilty about something or they're trying to please somebody. Uh, then in verse uh, 6 through 15, he's going to argue, give some arguments for generous giving. And in verses 6 through 11, how God responds to uh, generous giving by adding abundance. And this is, a, I think, a wonderful motivation that he talks about here that we can learn from. So, uh, verse 6, he says, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. The principle is very simple. If you sow a little bit, you'll reap a little bit. You sow a lot, you'll reap a lot. The analogy, of course, is of a farmer, and any farmer who only sows a little bit is only going to reap a small harvest. The one who sows quite a bit is going to reap an abundant harvest. So, very simple analogy for them to follow. And, you know, that has reinforced a number of places in the uh, Old Testament. One of my favorites is Proverbs 11. So I'm going to turn there and, uh, and read that one. I've always liked what he says in Proverbs 11, verses 24 and 25. But it's consistent in other Proverbs and in um, Luke 8.38, I've noted, and Galatians 6.7, of course, one reaps uh, what, what one sows. Proverbs 11.24 and 25, I'm reading. Um, verse 24 says, There is one who scatters, yet increases more. And there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. Now here's God's, in God's way of doing things, in his economy, if the more you give, the more you receive. And the, and the more you try to hold back can actually lead to poverty or want. And so if you're generous, he says, you'll be made rich, but and he who waters spreads the resources around, will himself be watered. Uh, that's just another wonderful way of saying what Paul is trying to say here in verse 6, that the law of sowing and reaping, you reap what you sow. Now, some people, of course, have abused this and misused this in what we call prosperity theology. You're familiar with the prosperity gospel. Um, they're always asking you for money. And they say, well, you give your seed money, 
and God will grow it and return riches to you. And of course, they're talking about financial riches. And it's all wrong in every way because you'll see later that Paul is not just talking about money. He's talking about blessings. When he talked about Jesus Christ being rich and becoming poor, he wasn't talking about finances in chapter 8. He was talking about Jesus who's rich in spiritual blessings, became poor in physical blessings or in physical uh, items for our sake. Um, so we dismiss prosperity theology because it, it's simply, it simple focuses on money, and they never explain why the money always has to go to them. <laughs> you always have to plant the seed money with them. And the attitude that God desires is in verse 7. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. What I see here is that giving is to be purposeful. And something that is purposeful means that it needs to be planned. When we purpose to do something, we usually have a plan to do something. So he wants them to give with purpose and plan. And not again because they have to, but not grudgingly or of necessity, but God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a giver who is wanting to, willing to, planning to, purposing to give to help the needs of others. Um, so the giving isn't legislated. Paul isn't telling them an amount. He's not saying give 10% like many preachers would even preach today as if we're under the law. Under the law, it'd actually be a lot more than 10%. But he wants people to give from, not a percentage, but from the heart. Purpose in your heart. And the heart, of course, stands for the inner person. Um, so it's personal, it's confidential, and it's, it's not something that is necessarily made public or known by others, which is in contrast to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 6 who give out in the open and publicly and get the applause of men. Jesus said, um, they have their reward, they won't have the reward in heaven. So it's not that we announce what we're giving, and give in a boastful way at all, but uh, we give cheerfully, which shows a motivation that we really enjoy participating uh, with God's purpose and being a part of his loving generosity towards other people. Now the word cheerful there is the Greek word, Hilarion. You might recognize the sound of that as being related to our English word hilarious. So it really has to do with a great joy, giving with great joy, very joyfully. So, so far, what I think we can see and learn is that giving should be motivated by love, a love for God and a love for his people. And that's what Paul is appealing to. <clears throat> and also, he's we can learn that um, giving should be purposeful and planned. Uh, and to be planned means, I think, to be consistent um, giving, not just a one-time emotional response, but something that is consistent. Um, we budget for things like rent. We budget for utilities. We budget for groceries. Um, there's a lot of things that we budget for retirement. Why not budget, so to speak, our giving or plan our giving? As circumstances change, we can always change that. But I'm wondering if you have a consistent plan to give and not just give spontaneously or as many people do as an emotional response to something or a special appeal. 
we shouldn't have to wait for people to give us those special appeals. We should have our planning give, giving planned out ahead of time. Um, giving should be generous, we learn. Uh, generosity, again, is relative to your situation and, and to your what's in your heart. But I know a lot of people say, well, I, I would give if only I had more. Um, well, you can give generously with what you have. If the widow only had two mites and she gave it all, and that's considered being generous. If, uh, if I only had more, what does that mean? Why do you have to have more to give now? Anyway, did you know that evangelical Christians, those are Christians who believe the Bible and say they're born again, the average giving of an evangelical Christian is less than 2.5% of their income. And um, that, that disturbs me quite a bit. How many evangelical Christians give 10% or more? Only 8% of the people. How many evangelical Christians give nothing? 26%. 26% give nothing to the church. I'm talking, they may give to other things, but I'm talking about to the, these statistics that relate to the church, which in my opinion should be the focus of our giving. Like, like in the Corinthians, the, the, the collection point was the church, and it went from one church to another. There's nothing wrong with giving to other things, other organizations, parachurch ministries. That's how we exist as Grace Life Ministries. But I always tell people who give to Grace Life, give to your church first. Make sure that that is met first. How many people give nothing? 26%. Mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. And yet, uh, I don't know if these people go to church or not. I don't know what the survey said about that. But there are many, many people who come to church and they expect somebody to pay the electric bills and, and clean the carpets and pay for the cleanup of the church and pay the pastor and, and uh, the children's programs for their children and so forth and yet never give a thing. But you and I know that uh, it takes money to have a church ministry. It also teaches us that giving is a private matter. So um, we shouldn't be nosy about what other people give or ask what other people give. I, as a pastor, never knew what people in my church were giving. Now, I've, I've heard of some pastors and church leaders saying that they want to know what their people are giving, and I, I can see that as justifiable. But the reason I never wanted to know is because I'm afraid that I would be too impressed with some people. And then I'm afraid I'd be too disappointed with other people. <laughs> I didn't want to have... A, an inflated opinion of people, and I didn't want to have a deflated opinion of people, so I never knew what people are giving. But it, it is relevant in some ways, because I remember one meeting, we were considering someone to be a deacon in our church, and we didn't want to ask if that person gave to the church, but we simply asked the treasurer, because the treasurer always knows. We said, uh, as the treasurer of the church, based on this person's giving, would you vote for him to be a deacon? And, and the treasurer said, no. He didn't hesitate for a second. He said, nope. So we did not even nominate him to be a deacon. Uh, and I didn't need to know what he gave. I just needed to know one man's opinion who knew what he was giving. So it's, it's, it's a private matter. And uh, we don't know how people's circumstances are and what they're going through, what their money is used for in other ways. But we have to be very careful about judging people about what they spend on themselves and what they give to God. 
Um, and it, it, we should keep it basically private. And then giving should be a joy. Um, uh, why do we want to be joyful? Well, I think it, it's a demonstration of God's grace and our response to his grace. God's a cheerful giver. He cheerfully gave uh, for, for us and to us. And, it, and if we can cheerfully give to others, then we become more like God. And we are loving like God loves. And we're pleasing God, I think, at the same time. Um, but giving, if it's done in the right way, brings great joy. At Christmas time, who gets the most joy? The children who are opening the gifts or the parents who give them? Parents get the most joy, right? And if you're immature and you're a child, you get the most joy because you're being very selfish. But as we mature and learn to be less selfish, which is what children teach us, why God gives us children to teach us to be unselfish, then we get the most joy from giving the gifts to them. So, joyful <clears throat> giving comes from uh, giving the way God does, uh, graciously, uh, out of love, and, um, and that can bring great joy. I've probably used this illustration but before, but um, I think I... Re I have, but there was a time that a, a well-known financial advisor came through and was giving lectures at the seminary, and uh, I asked him outright, I said, because he was telling us we should get out of debt, and I said, well, to get out of debt, if that's a priority, should we stop giving in order to get out of debt? And he said, yeah, I think you should get out of debt first. And so Karen and I talked about it, and we said, okay, let's get, let's get out of our little bit of debt we had and stop giving, and we stopped giving, but... What happened was, within a month or so, we realized that our joy was gone because we enjoyed giving, and our joy was gone. And so we we said, forget what he said. Let's just keep giving, and um, and we our joy returned because we really do find a lot of joy in giving. I hope you do too. That's um, you know I hate doing taxes, and I do my ministerial taxes are more complicated because I get a housing housing allowance. I have to keep a receipt for everything related to the house. It takes me three or four days to do my taxes. And that's before I turn them into the person who does my taxes. <laughs> it takes them 20 minutes on the computer and they charge me $400 or something. <laughs> it takes me three days to get the receipts together because I don't do it every month. I wait, wait till the end of the year. It's a, it's a torturous three, four days because I just hate it. The only bright spot is when I get to go back and look at what I gave, what we gave for the year. <laughs> and then I say, well, that's nice, <laughs> you know, to go back and be reminded of, how we helped others during the year in our charitable giving. So that's the only bright spot in that terrible tax time. In verses 8 through 11, um, he goes on to talk about God's blessings that come when we give. And he says in verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound towards you that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work as it is written. He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Well, this is how God can return the blessing to the giver. He says, God is able to make all grace abound towards you. I love that phrase, God is able. <clears throat> See, the person who is being stingy or selfish with their resources doesn't understand the fact that God is able to replenish whatever we give out. And so... He can make all grace abound towards us, not just financial grace, but grace that comes in other ways. Maybe by giving us good health. You, under, you realize how much money we would save by having good health? 
And and if you get if if God wants you to if you're going to be stingy and think you're going to collect all this money, and you get sick, it goes right away. So God can. We just learned from our passage today that God can make people sick, and like He did in First Chronicles twenty-one. I'm wondering if He struck those Israelites with COVID. I don't know. A lot of them died pretty quickly. But anyway, that's not really a funny joke. The point is, is that health is in God's hands too. Um, how your car runs is in His hands. He can make all grace abound by keeping you healthy, by keeping your car running. And those who want to hoard and keep more than they need, uh, they don't know but that God can remove that from them just as, uh, as easily as anything. So God is able, I love that phrase, to supply our needs and even more when we give to others. Uh, somebody has says that God's shovel is bigger than ours. We, whatever we shovel out, he can shovel more back in. And we're reminded in the New Testament that God is able to supply all our needs according to his riches and glories in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4.19. I think he's talking there to people who are generous in giving because he's thanking them for their gift. In Ephesians 3.20, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. So he uh, has no shortages and he, he is able. I just love that phrase. And he can. He can supply any need that we have uh, or any desire that we have, but again, he may not because it may not be for our benefit for him to give us everything we want or think we need. But he is able. It doesn't say he will, but he is able. Um, Always, it says, having all sufficiency. The NIV says, at all times. And so God is always ready to give us an abundance of grace just as we should always be ready to help other people um, with our giving. And the reason that he wants to supply a, a sufficiency to us is because he talks about that we may have an abundance for every good work so that we can continue to do more giving. And so God gives, it, gives more to us, not that we can be uh, wealthy. And of course, he has more in mind than just finances here, but that's easiest to use as a concrete example. Uh, he doesn't just want to give us more money if we give money, but it's an abundance for every good work. He's giving us more that we can, so that we can continue to pass it on and be a channel of his grace, not a reservoir where we just collect for ourselves. And then he uses as an example um, a blessed man And he quotes from Psalm 112, verse 9. And just as a context, Psalm 112 starts out with the verse, How blessed is the man who fears the Lord. And then it goes on to describe that man. And talking about that man, he comes down to verse 9, Psalm 112, verse 9. He has dispersed abroad. In other words, he's been generous. He's given to the poor. And his righteousness or his Good works endure forever. I think the righteousness here speaks of his upright behavior. Um, So he is blessed by God because he's a generous man. That's the point of the quote. Then in verses 10 through 11, he continues on with how God blesses the giver. Verse 10, now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. 
while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. So what he's saying is, as we give, more grace is given to the giver. And God is able to supply abundantly. He talks about um, uh, abundantly, just like he does uh, bread for food and seed to the sower. Uh, God is able to multiply the seed that we've sown. So he gives, he, he gives us and not an equal amount that we have sown, but even more than we have sown. And so we can continue to do more righteous works or the fruits of our righteousness. And in verse 11, he's reminding us that we're enriched in everything uh, for all liberality so that we can be generous with our time, with our money, with our resources, with our energy, with our strength, with our homes, whatever it is. And that causes thanksgiving to go up to God. It actually causes people to give thanks to God. Um, Paul says, through us to God. I think the idea is because the gift comes through us, people know that it's God working through us, and so they give thanks to God for that gift. So you really cannot outgive God. Uh, when we give generously towards others, he gives generously so that we can continue to give generous, even more generously to people or the needs that we see around us. Now, in verses 12 through 14, he talks about the recipient's response to the giving. They will respond with thanksgiving. Of course, the recipients here are going to be the saints in Jerusalem. Verse 12, for the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, in this case would be Jerusalem, but also is abounding through many thanksgiving to God. So it sets off kind of a chain reaction. Not only is their generosity meeting the needs, putting food on the table of the people in Jerusalem, but it's causing them to give thanks to God. And those who observe God working in this way give thanks to God. In verse 13, while through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession, to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. So God is glorified and more thanks are given because their spiritual virtues of obeying what they promised to do and um, what God has commanded us to do. They are generating more thanks to God. They're being really obedient to the command that Jesus left us to love one another. And that's what this giving is motivated, should be motivated by his love for their fellow brothers in Christ. So God is glorified, more thanks are given. And verse 14, and by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. So another way that God is glorified is that uh, these Christians' bonds are strengthened together and it causes them to pray for the Corinthians. and. Um, they long for the Corinthians. They, they want to deepen their relationship with them because of the exceeding grace of God in you. They see, God, they see grace at work in you. you know, grace is always an attractive thing. When people who exhibit grace and give graciously, others notice that and they are attracted to it. And what I have found is that um, when, when something like money is involved, our hearts are, are affected. 
what did Jesus say? Remember, he said, where your treasure is, there your hearts will be also. Now, I've always thought about that, and it seems odd the way he said it, because you would expect him to say, where your hearts are, there your treasure will be. In other words, whatever you set your heart on, that's where your money's going to go. But that's not what Jesus said. He said, where your money goes, that's where your heart's going to go. So, if these Corinthians are giving to the saints in Jerusalem, where's their hearts going to go? Their hearts are going to follow. And, and then the Jerusalem saints are going to have a, affection for the Corinthian saints as well. And, and I found this to be true in my own life. You know, we, I have, a, we, I'm sure I'm speaking for Karen too, but I don't know what every day she prays about, but what I find is that when I participate in someone's ministry financially, I pray for that person. And, and if I don't, sometimes I won't. <laughs> but if there's a financial connection either received by me or given by me, my heart follows that connection and builds a stronger bond spiritually. Um, I think that's what Jesus was getting at. I mean, there's so many people I know that I could pray for, and I do. Pray, I don't pray for everybody. I give to. I mean, I don't give to everybody that I pray for. Um, but those that we might choose to help in some way, we pray for them also. Our hearts follow our money. It's almost like you want to see a good return on your investment, so you pray that it, that their ministry would be prof, prosperous and uh, their personal lives would be prosperous. So that your investment would actually uh, show a return. Well, I, I, I love the way he ends chapter. He ends it with words he can't find. He says, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. After talking about the grace of God that's working in the, them, he reminds them, I think, of the ultimate gift of God that is in Jesus Christ. And he runs out of words, so he just calls it the indescribable gift. You ever had an experience that you say, well, you know, I just can't describe it to you. You ever seen something so beautiful or tasted something so good? I just can't describe it. Well, Paul is talking about the tasting of God's grace and generosity that comes through other people. And that's all because made possible by Jesus. And what God did by sending his son, Jesus Christ, is something that we can't explain. We can't fathom the love that's behind it. In spite of our sins, we can't fathom the riches that Jesus gave up in heaven to come to this poor, dark earth. It's an indescribable gift in many, many ways. It, we just don't have words for it. And so Paul, is a, as if he ends, ends by running out of words, he ends the chapter. And uh, the best way that we can show gratitude is by returning to him all that we have. He gave us his all. We can give him our all. And I think that's what Romans 12.1 is reminding us after talking about grace throughout the book of Romans. We get up to chapter 12 and he says, I urge you therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies a living sacrifice to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Uh, that's what one version reads it. I've memorized it in several versions, so I mix them up sometimes. Uh, which is your reasonable service 
of worship. What does it make sense to do if God has given you everything and nothing but grace for 11 chapters? He's talked about that. What does it make sense for us to do except to respond to him by giving him all that we are? And so all that we are is contained in our bodies. Our bodies is everything that we are right now. And so we offer our bodies. That includes our mind, our spirit, our, our hands, our mouth, our eyes, and everything to him. Well, let me just conclude by mentioning a couple applications from this second part of the chapter 9. Giving should be a continuing commitment. I think we've already said that in some ways. But he wanted their giving to be um, continuous because that, in that way they will continually experience God's grace. And because they've, they've been experiencing God's grace and God's grace is poured out on us every day, then giving should be a continuing commitment that we make to God, not just an occasional thing or one-time thing. And then I think we also learn that we should trust God with generous giving. Going back to the phrase that God is able. And if God is able to supply our needs over and above what we need and to give us an abundance for more sowing, then why can't we trust him and be generous in our sowing? I think we read a statistic like I mentioned earlier that 26% of evangelical Christians don't give anything. I think it's be, they're probably, it's all due to a lack of faith in God. Well, if I give, I'll have less, is what they think. And if I give, uh, where's the money going to come from? Well, the whole, the whole point of this chapter is that God is able. He can supply any need that you have, over and abundant what you have. Uh, I think that we, we have seen in our married life over and over and over again how God has supplied us in a way beyond what we expected. We've tried to be faithful in giving, and, and God yet God has always supplied above and beyond what we could do, what we thought uh, or expected. Even during seminary days when we had nothing, literally nothing, and uh, we continued to give, God would supply us with surprising things, like somebody would fix our car, and we don't even know who it was, or paid for our car, and who, who it was, somebody would... Give us money for seminary tuition. Or, and just, I could go on and on and on. Um, we never cease to be amazed at how God has, is able to supply those needs. And so giving is an act of faith, I think. You're saying, God, I know you're able to, to supply my needs, so I'm going to release generously this amount to help somebody else. One, uh, one fellow in a church was having a great deal of difficulty with this idea of giving, because he said, I just, I just don't ha have, have enough. I, I don't know if I could pay, if I give, I don't know if I could pay my bills and buy groceries for the family and so forth. So the pastor said to him, so what if I promise you that I, if you, if you start giving, I will make sure every one of your bills is paid and groceries will always be uh, provided for your family and uh, you'll, you'll always have a place to live. Would you give then? And the man says, yeah, okay. And the pastor rebuked him and said, so you're, what you're saying is you're trusting me, but you won't trust God. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> 
Well, how would you? What would you respond to that? If you say, "Well, I don't know if I can, I can continue giving because I don't know if I can pay the rent this month or something." And if somebody came along to you, say, "Well, go ahead and give," I guarantee you'll pay the rent. You said, "Okay." So, are you really trusting God, or you're trusting the person that promised you? So, I think we should consider giving as an investment, and I think Paul is saying it that saying that without saying it in those words but investors talk about ROI return on investment when we're talking about money they they're always looking to see invest in something and what do I get back in return that's called ROI return on investment and we don't want to put this just in financial terms because there's so many ways that we can give but Paul is talking about money here and really money or anything that we give time energy uh, hospitality included uh we get a return on the investment that we make we may see it in this life god may bless us with abundance in this life or more than we need or it may be if not in this life surely at the judgment seat of christ where rewards will be handed out according to what we've done so we have the assurance that our investment will always always pay off with a great dividend if not in this life than in eternity through the rewards that we have. So I would just conclude by challenging each of us. And, I, and as I looked and reviewed, I'm getting the statements and, you know, at the end of the year, contribution statements from different organizations, and I'm looking at it. And then I was reading this passage this week and studying it, and I'm thinking to myself, I wonder if we could have done more. I think we could have. And uh, so I'm ready to reevaluate some of the, our giving for the next year. Um, and maybe it's time that all of us just reevaluate. We might have fallen into a pattern and maybe we can be more generous. You know, maybe there's some needs that will come along that we don't even know of right now. And will you be ready to be generous when they do come along? So good words for us about uh, giving and the motivation behind the giving. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.